Welcome to FinTech Brews and News, brought to you by Central Payments and Falls FinTech. I'm Nikki Rohde. And I'm Trent Sorby. Founders, co-founders, payments professionals, and, well, just people who love brews. This is a place to get a behind-the-scenes look at unique partnerships and ways to bridge the financial gap between banking, startups, and the entire fintech industry. Whether it's a beer or coffee or something else, there's certain to be a brew in every episode. After all, how do we function in this space without it? Each episode, you're sure to take away some good stuff going on in the financial technology space. So without further ado, let's grab a brew. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to FinTech Brews and News. Uh, I'm Trent Sorby. And I'm Nikki Rohde. Um, Nikki and I are back together again. We've done a few podcasts uh, solo here recently, but we wanted to come back together for an episode that uh, all of us have been really looking forward to today. Um, today, we've got a, a couple real thought leaders in fintech um, that we wanted to bring in and talk about. Um, we're always used to talking about all the changes going on in fintech. That's sort of an accepted norm, but I think times are especially interesting right now, um, given everything that's going on in the marketplace today. Um, so I, I'm really pleased today to introduce Alec Johnson from Fintech Takes. Um, Alex, uh, his newsletter is a, is an extremely well-regarded newsletter, um, gaining a ton of traction in the space where he covers effectively all things fintech. And then also we have Jason Makula coming to us from the Netherlands. So uh, very excited to have Jason join us today. Jason, of course, uh, publishes Fintech Business Weekly. Um, both these guys um, drop a drop their newsletters. Uh, usually guys, is it, is it usually like on a weekend, like on Sundays or something like that, or Monday mornings or something? Is that right? I, I uh, ruin people's Sunday mornings by showing up, you know, just in time to, to take over uh, their morning coffee. Yeah. And I, um, no, I love it because <laughs> I, I try to show as much respect for everyone's days and times and work schedules as possible and do Monday and Thursday. So. so again, thanks for joining us today, guys. I'd love to start this um, podcast off with a little understanding of your backgrounds, um, a little description of the new newsletters you're putting out, your podcast. Um, give everybody just a little bit of background on each of you. Alex, why don't you why don't you go first, and uh, and then we'll pop over to Jason. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me on. Um, I write, as you mentioned, a newsletter called FinTech Takes. Um, I've been working on it for the last couple of years, and um, when I started, it was really just a uh, an exercise in trying to keep up with all the fintech news. So it was really more for me than it was for anyone else and kind of just published it uh, almost just to sort of see what would happen and started getting good traction, started getting a lot of people responding to it. Uh, a lot of people sort of gently correcting all the different things that I was getting wrong, but in a very nice sort of inclusive way that made me want to keep going. And so um, turned into a slightly bigger thing at all of kind of my previous jobs that I've been working at the last couple of years. And then just recently, within the last couple of months, uh, made the leap to writing the newsletter full time. So um, now I'm writing the the newsletter twice a week. And then um, I, I convinced Jason to uh, team up and do a monthly uh, podcast called FinTech Recap, where we hop on the phone together and recap some of the more sort of interesting trends in fintech and crypto and banking. Um, and usually there's some 
crypto or DeFi story that we can't let go of that we spend a few minutes on at the end. So um, that's uh, that's me. And my background is really in um, kind of credit and lending primarily. I spent about five years working at FICO um, and then I've spent uh, a number of years working at different market research and analyst firms, mostly focused on the credit and lending space. Wonderful. So you can make a career out of just sitting around talking about fintech. I mean, somebody can make a career. I mean, what oh, we don't give many ideas. No, Usually, I just dream. It's the dream. That was like the the thing that I I only realized within the last like six months was like, oh my god, I could actually do this full time for a job. And when I um, tell my wife or other family members what I do for a living now, they just sort of shake their heads and walk away because it doesn't seem like a real job. But um, thankfully, it is, and it's it's a blast. Hey, people get paid for sitting in their basement playing video games. So, I mean, it's amazing what you can do nowadays. Jason, tell us a little about you. Yeah, so uh, like Alex, my background is also in consumer credit. So I uh, worked in operating roles uh, at companies like Enova, uh, LendUp, and Goldman Sachs, you know, building, launching, and scaling credit products, small dollar loans, personal loans, credit cards student loans, you name it. I feel like I've done it uh, at some point. Um, and when I relocated here to the Netherlands about two and a half years ago, I pivoted a bit into more advising and consulting from you know, early stage startup through to late stage, you know, late stage private company and even the occasional public company uh, focused primarily on you know, consumer, either consumer oriented products or the technology underneath them. Uh, and then my newsletter, which, you know, in retrospect, I should have picked a shorter name, uh, FinTech Business Weekly, but the domain was available. So, you know, that's a plus. Um, comes out every Sunday. <laughs> comes out um, every Sunday and, and focuses on similar topics, right? So I usually think oh, about these I might have lost you here, Jason. You said uh, comes out every Sunday? Comes out every Sunday um, and, and focuses on similar topics, right? So sort of looking at the FinTech banking and crypto space through the lens of, you know, how does it impact an end consumer or an end business who's using, using these products. Fantastic. So I want to delve into a couple topics. Um, and these are, these are topics both of you um, have actively um, comment on and, and written articles on and, and some of my favorite topics to talk about, you know, I'm always keenly interested in this, trend of bank as a service. And we talk about it all the time on this podcast. Um, and we love to talk about sort of where that space is going. Um, we like to talk about new entrants and then talk about the ways in which um, maybe some of the more mature companies are are migrating into bank as a service. Uh, I, I'm curious, uh, Jason, you wrote you wrote an article. I think it was in March, if I'm not mistaken, like early March on on bank as a service. What are you seeing in the space today um, in terms of um, you know the the receptiveness of that, not just among startup fintechs, but some of the more embedded, you know, well-established companies with with big brands that that are looking for um, solutions that that the bank as a service providers are are filling. So I think I mean the immediate appeal now is the speed to market and cost to market, right? So versus working directly with a partner bank uh, like a Bank Corp or a Stride compared to using something like unit, 
the the value prop, at least as they position it, is you know it's going to cost you less to get a product and a program up and running, uh, and you're going to be able to do it more quickly. And in the world of you know VC-backed startups, I think probably now more than ever, you know speed uh, and capital are your two major constraints. So I mean I think that's where the appeal is now. It's entirely possible that you know as you scale one of these businesses the economics of being on a BAS platform, like a, like a non-bank middleware platform, are actually less favorable than working directly with a partner bank. But if you've raised a, you know, a seed round or a small series A and you want to launch something, you know, and you're looking at a 12 to 18 month timeline, there are reasons why it could make sense. I think longer term, the two or three areas I see as interesting for the middleware players are multi-geography. So you don't really see this in the US yet, but there are players uh, in other countries, notably Rails Bank out of the UK and Airwallex, I think I'm saying that right, out of Australia that are a middleware layer that sit on top of bank licenses in multiple countries. And that starts to become interesting. Imagine your you know, maybe uh, a non-bank consumer product that wants, you know, your Starbucks or something, and you want to launch a loyalty program across many countries, or you're a fintech that's looking to expand into, you know, multiple countries in the UK and Western Europe. Using a middleware player that abstracts the complexity of multiple bank partnerships across multiple geographies is interesting. Um, in the US, something, you know, that makes sense is multi-product. So a lot of the bank partners tend to focus on one specific product. WebBank and CrossRiver do a lot of consumer lending. Uh, Celtic does SMB lending. Bancorp, Stride, Coastal Community do debit programs. If I want to build a full stack, do I want to go and build relationships with three or four different bank partners? Or do I want to work with a single middleware layer that has multiple bank partners sitting underneath. So I think you know, there are reasons why it makes sense now, and there are reasons or use cases in the future that, that could develop that make sense to work with a middleware layer instead of working directly with a single bank partnership. Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, I, I agree. I think the first time I sort of came across banking as a service was 2015, 2016, when um, online lending and P2P lending really blew up, right? And so I was looking into like Lending Club and Prosper, and I came across uh, WebBank, which is this teeny tiny little bank in Utah. And you looked at their balance sheet, and they were originating like billions of dollars of loans. And you're just like, I, this is insane. And you sort of dig into the details of it. And the model, which of course we're familiar with now, is, you know, act as the sort of lender of record, originate the loans, sell them back. And so they just acted as this conduit that these massive amounts of loans were flowing through. And if you looked at the amount of you know return on equity, return on assets per employee generated by WebBank, it like broke the needle, right? Compared to any other bank that has ever existed in the history of mankind. And I think that one thing that's happened sort of since then and since some of these early neobanks that have generated some success for these bank partners is that um, banking as a service has become hot, right? Like it's a very popular area and 
you know, we, when I was, uh, I worked at Cornerstone Advisors for a while, and we did a lot of research where we would interview consumers, but we'd also interview bank executives on different topics. And we interviewed bank executives on the topic of banking as a service. And while most of them said, hey, you know, we don't have a banking as a service offering in the market today, very few of them uh, didn't say, hey, we, we don't have any type of like thinking on this at all. All of them were planning or thinking about or evaluating banking as a service because they look at that market and especially given sort of the crunch that everyone's in around digital transformation and being able to keep up with customers and be able to compete directly with fintechs, banking as a service, as a model, I think is really, really appealing to banks. And, you know, to Jason's point, I think the really interesting question is, you know, will banks try to get into it directly and build all the sort of competencies and technologies necessary to do that? Will they partner up with these banking as a service platforms that kind of provide that middleware? Um, you know, will they try to offer other value-added services like an accelerator or getting into investing? Will they try to specialize in one particular area like payments or lending or embedded finance versus working with fintech? So I feel like we're at the point where everyone's kind of spreading out, trying to find their niche or their area where they can compete. And I think my general hypothesis for the space is that we're definitely going to see some consolidation because I don't think there's room for everyone to be in banking as a service, both in terms of platforms as well as banks. And so we will, I think, see some consolidation where winners will figure out a good niche that they can compete in long term. And the ones that kind of get consolidated out of the market will be the ones that, that don't figure that out. And, you know, we fall squarely of the two examples of where banks lie. We fall squarely in the former and not the latter you know, we, we've been in payments and, and I always think of it more as the traditional model and, and Jason touched out in, in the Chime Bank Corp model, we're right down the street from Bank Corp, um, where it's sort of a one-to-one relationship. And, and one of the things we saw, we kind of grew up with fintech when we started in 2014. And so it was clear to us that the more traditional model was, was tough because the fintech really needed more um, from the financial institution for a lot of different reasons. And, and so we said, look, it's, it's gotta be technology forward. It's gotta, we have to come closer to the FinTech than, you know, be in the sponsor bank with the fine print on the back of the card, get the bin and, and make sure you have your FDIC insurance. It's, it's so much more than that. And, you know, we, we built out our open CP platform, um, you know, maybe earlier than anybody, but it's interesting because Alex, you touched on the cornerstone um, report. And the first thing I looked at when I looked at that, I'm like, where are the banks? Um, You know, how how do you do bank as a service? If you're not a bank, we like to call it all the time around here. It's like real bank as a service, because God forbid, it's actually a bank. Um, What, what would be your answer to, you know, why there weren't more financial institutions in that report listed. And we saw the, the non-bank startup companies like the unit and the bonds and the synapses and all the ones that, that the two of you mentioned, what, what, how, what would, how would you, how would you explain um, why that report came out with, with really no banks in the bank as a service category? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a good question. My hypothesis on it is that, um, for a lot of banks, banking as a service is seen more as like a, a life raft than it is uh, a sort of strategic opportunity, right? And so it's more something that a lot of banks are considering because other areas of their business are not growing or they're sort of challenged in other areas. And when you're looking for something new to jump to as something that can kind of save your business, uh, that tends to be something that I think you try to get to as quickly as you can. 
and as sort of inexpensively as you can. And so I think the banking as a service platforms have scooped up a decent number of banks that are just like, hey, we got to be in banking as a service. It's a great way to generate additional revenue, but we don't really see it as a strategic area that we want to invest in. We just want to get into it as quickly and cheaply as possible. And I think that's the sort of dominant attitude among uh, mid-size and community institutions. And obviously in the US, there's a bias in banking as a service towards mid-size and community banks that are under that $10 billion asset threshold because they can sort of offer superior unit economics to their partners. So I think among that segment of banks, most just don't have the appetite to sort of take on that heavy technology lift and quite frankly, figure out ways to build productive working relationships directly with fintech companies, right? Like I talked to a lot of, you know, community bankers and the idea of like, going out and building relationships and getting to know people in the fintech ecosystem and creating a pipeline of potential partners, like they have no idea where to start on that. Even if the technology and the infrastructure and the operations weren't a problem, even the acquisition of partners is by itself a huge lift for a lot of them. So I think that tends to scare them off. Jason, you did a you did an outstanding job recently of calling out a couple of products that you just straight up said, uh, this is deceptive. This is just absolutely deceptive. Um, and it was around the issue that I think you're just sort of touching on where you were seeing APYs that normally you think about a return of interest on funds deposited in a bank, of course, those being FDIC insured, and then comparing that against a stable coin offering and trying to make that appear apples and apples when we all know it's apples and oranges when you think about the the risk of principal loss there. Um, I think, you know, I loved your article there because I think it calls out how some of these providers have found their way to get through some of the, they get through their bank partner, they get through their bank as a service provider, they get through, you know, some really well-regarded accelerators are able to raise money. And at the same time, you were right to call these products into question and say, look, I'm not, I'm not entirely buying into the 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 pitch here and i think it could actually mislead consumers so i i i got to give you a ton of credit for that article on that because it, sooner or later people are going to understand that fda and c insurance um you don't think about it until you need it yeah i mean a couple of the companies in this space that i've looked at have used language that that basically characterized you know in an FAQ kind of setting, you know, do I need to worry about FDIC insurance? Is it important? Is it not important? And basically characterized it as, you know, something that either, you know, if you have more than $250,000, you know, you're not covered anyway, and you have enough money, so you shouldn't worry about it. If you only have $200, you know, you have too little money for it to matter, which I would venture to guess if it's your last $200 and you lost it, you would probably feel a little bit differently about that. Um, I mean, there was even one that, that also drew a comparison to life insurance and in saying that that was sort of a, a, a bad way of achieving security or allocating, you know, allocating capital. I mean, I think, you know, part of the reason that, that these examples, um, you know, I find them so striking is my, my background uh, was in marketing financial services products. I spent many, many hours days, weeks of my career in rooms with lawyers who are telling me to some extent what I could and could not say or sort of providing boundaries 
around uh, justifying marketing claims and things that would incur certain levels of risk. So then when I see some of these, these things out in the wild, you know, in, in particularly the one that, that sticks in my mind is the sort of graph comparing this D5 product to Chase to Goldman Sachs, a typical person looking at that is going to infer that these are the same thing, that they're the same product. When, you know, practitioners in banking and the business understand that they are not, but they're, they're targeted, they're marketing these products at consumers who likely, you know, are not sophisticated enough to necessarily know the difference. And, you know, it's, it's hard to ascribe intent, but if I put myself in the shoes of a marketer who's creating that landing page or creating that advertisement, what I want to convince my end audience of is my product is just as safe as those guys' product. So Jason, I, I appreciate all the comments you've had about some of these products where the line between um, a, a bank account with fiat um, stored and earning interest um, and with the safety of FDIC insurance up to $250,000, of course, um, and then comparing that to other products in the marketplace. It, it was interesting when I, when I read your article about some of the way in which some of these providers are presenting when they, when they draw the distinction, it's not necessarily just yield, but it's almost as this, they downplay the importance of um, safety and security of the principle of your, of your money and, and almost make you feel like you're, you're making a bad investment decision if you don't go chase yield um, in the crypto product. So maybe talk a little bit about that and sort of what you're seeing in the marketplace. And, and, and maybe just one more point, how do these companies get by with that in your mind? Yeah, I mean, quickly, I, I think you raise a really valid concern and that, you know, uh, neobanks, to use a specific example, don't presumably have to have a specific uh, sort of wind down plan or the living will uh, that banks do, right? So, you know, even if we look at an example in recent history, Simple, which wasn't explicitly a failure, but it was sold to BBVA, and then in turn, that all went into PNC. And the experience of customers during that transition sounded, uh, to put it bluntly, like pretty bad, right? And so you can imagine if you had a scenario where you had a neobank that outright, you know, essentially ran out of money and needed to be wound down, you know, I'm not aware of a, sort of a, a playbook for how to do that in an orderly way. Um, and examples abound, I mean, now coming to mind, Rush Card, which didn't fail, but it was doing a tech transition. Consumers were locked out of their account for, you know, I think five days, seven days, some of them longer. So, I mean, there are examples of particularly, you know, sort of highly vulnerable populations who were put in a very bad position when a financial services provider had some sort of technology interruption or some sort of transition. And unfortunately, like I would anticipate, we probably will see something like that um, if uh, fintechs serving uh, end consumers run into issues and need to be sort of sold through M&A quickly or need to be wound down. Um, so hopefully not, but you may be right that we see something like that happen. I know I agree. And I get worked up too. Look, I, in interest of disclosure, I, my first nine years was at the FDIC. So I'm very interested in, and I've seen banks close and I've seen the checks at that time for $100,000 getting cut to depositors. And, you know, so you understand you know, the, the importance of, you know, having that coverage there. And, and I think you said it very well, 
it's one thing to say, I can pay you this much interest and there's risk on that investment. It's another thing to say, to, to your point, um, take the cloak off of uh, some brands and, and put yourself inside the cloak of the brand. And and that is where I think we are we are headed for a problem. And I think for a challenger bank and I, I, a challenger organization to say, I have bank accounts. I mean, that, that right there, we've had a lot of conversations about that in the last few years, about whether that toes a line. This is setting a whole new line. I mean, that... I can at least to say, like, look, regardless, you may not totally understand who it has, who is the insured entity, but at least your funds are insured. Here, this is just a this just moves moves the needle that much further, and and I think it's it's really troubling. Alex, I'm curious in your thoughts on this. Do you think, um, do you do you think bank as a service is going to be susceptible um, to more and more products that? that move the needle somewhere even less comfortable than where we are today from a compliance standpoint. I mean, we're, as we chase products, there aren't, there are a lot of new products out there and, and everybody wants to um, be a trendsetter, but sometimes you can push the edge so much that it, are, are, is the bank as a service model inviting, um, you know, sometimes maybe some questionable products to come into the marketplace. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, to your earlier point, you know, Chime gets in trouble for referring to itself as a bank, but, you know, the stuff that's happening in DeFi with these sort of savings accounts or deposit accounts, you know, is so much further along the line of like not being honest and representing what the product is that it kind of makes the Chime fintech example seem very quaint by comparison. And, I think it's a really good question because, you know, there's this constant push towards, you know, we need to bring more innovation. We need to push fintech and DeFi into every underserved corner of the market. But the reality is there are certain corners of the market that are underserved for valid reasons. Right. And I think that's. Yeah, they, they belong in they belong in the Yeah, corner. exactly. And and you know, I mean, those things are always changing, right? Like I, I wrote recently about um cannabis banking, right? Which is in this really weird legal gray area where it's illegal on a federal level, it's legal on a state level in many states, and you know, it, the the um you know, feds have had to actually issue guidance saying that yeah, technically, if you're working with a cannabis business, we want you to file a SAR every single time you have any interaction with that business, because technically that is activity that's derived from uh, illegal funds. However, we don't want you to saturate us with a bunch of like basically legal cannabis businesses with these SARs that don't mean anything. So we have this totally different category of SARs for like actual scary businesses that we want you to tell us about. And the rest of these, yeah, you have to file a SAR, but we won't worry about it. It's this really weird kind of gray area that exists around cannabis that I think, you know, banks are sort of naturally looking at and going, at what point do we jump into this? At what point do we sort of bite the bullet and say, we'll build the extra risk management and compliance infrastructure to bank these businesses safely? Because there is a huge opportunity there. And if you sort of play out what that little corner of the market is going to look like five years from now or 10 years from now as probably legalization continues to kind of chug along and this becomes less of a criminalized category, that's going to be an opportunity for someone. And the people who get there early, that's going to matter. But the tide can also shift away from you, right? And there's, I think, lots of examples of banks that have gotten themselves into trouble by jumping too uh, soon into some of these kind of gray areas that ended up getting burned by that. And so 
I think banking as a service makes that all the more complicated because it's not just you and your products and the decisions that you're making around that. It's the policies you're putting in place for partners that are being brought on board. And as you scale up, you have to have a really clear idea of these are the segments of the market we want to serve. These are the risks we want to take. And these are the ones where we're not even going to waste any time. It's just a clear no, and we want to move on. We think of them as, we always call them the three C's, right? Casinos, cannabis, and crypto. Right. Um, and and we talk about those all the time. I think it's very interesting that what you were just saying there, Alex, and, and I share the view. One of the reasons why we immediately built our own bank as a service platform is we think there was vulnerability in a model that kept the bank issuer a bit disconnected from the 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 platform and the end distributor or provider of the product and we think that created vulnerability and so when we talk to our partners and we say look see the value in when you're talking to your technology provider you're also talking to your bank issuer at the same time we think that from the very beginning we have said that's great from a business development standpoint. We can sell that. We can draw distinctions from the non-bank providers, but I think it's also more important from a risk management standpoint and be able to say, look, I am in the middle of all of the activity that is going on. I'm not sitting one step removed from the BAS platform um, that, you know, no matter what, you're one step removed from anything, you're you're exposing yourself to risk of of potentially nefarious things happening. Right. No, I think that's true. And I think the the pitch from the Bass platform perspective is, well, we'll take on a bunch of that compliance burden. Like we'll do that work so that you, the, the fintech company doesn't have to. But I think the thing that fintech companies or embedded finance brands need to realize about that model is the Bass platform can try to take on more of the compliance burden and can try to own more of that. But at the end of the day, the bank is the one that's making the decision on yes or no, we will allow this transaction, we won't, we will keep this account active, or we're going to deactivate this account. You know, this business is suddenly not good for us. We just had, you know, our um, latest meeting with our examiner and they, you know, crossed out these three areas. We can't be in these areas anymore. And we've seen plenty of examples of fintech companies that have had service disruptions or problems happen with their business because they were a little removed from their bank partner and their bank partner made a decision for their own well-being and based on their own kind of compliance needs that had a huge downstream impact on the fintech company and on their customers, right? And so to me, that direct relationship with the bank is so, so important because, you know, even if you don't want to consider yourself a compliance expert, you are subject to those compliance requirements. Absolutely. I think you touched, you're absolutely correct. I, I could not agree more. Um, I want to hit on a real quick point ahead. on that too, Alex, is this age old issue that regulation is lagging. What's the right move and how do we help solve some of that with the, with the speed of some of the DeFi stuff and, and crypto and everything else that casinos, if you want to add that to the fold too. No, but the, how do we get regulation to speed up so banks have some clear direction and we don't run into some of these funky UDAP things? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, I think that the the way I would like to see regulation um, be sort of driven, and this is maybe a pipe dream, is that um, I think it needs to be based on market traction 
more so than on kind of complaints or problems, right? And so if you think about sort of the the evolution of sort of how innovative ideas sort of develop in financial services, it starts with like, oh, hey, that's a strange model, right? Like someone's trying something new. And generally, you'll find someone in the ecosystem if you want to try someone something new to partner with you on that. And I don't necessarily think that regulation is needed or beneficial at that point because you know you don't want to kill ideas too early because there is benefit to consumers into the ecosystem to let some of those experiments play out. But I think what happens is a lot of regulation tends to result from the very end of that evolution, which is we did this experiment, the experiment worked, we scaled up this experiment, we ran it at full speed without a lot of supervision, and then a bunch of people got hurt. And then based on that consumer harm, regulation is taking place and we're going in and saying, oh, we're going to stop that from happening again. And I think that's too late, right? Like that's the... Right. You have responsive regulation, like you're in response to a problem, you know, it's going to be more draconian than if you try to get ahead. Totally, totally. And so to me, I think, you know, a lot of regulatory agencies do a good job doing research, right? And like studying the market and doing surveys and trying to understand like what's happening in the market, what consumers are doing. And I'd like to see more of a link between that research on what's getting traction in the market, what's actually happening to drive more proactive regulation where they say, hey, look, you know, 250,000 uh, crypto wallets have connected to the anchor protocol for generating yield based on the Terra stablecoin. That's a lot of wallets. So before anything happens with Terra, we want to try to get involved in that and figure out what's going on and maybe try to put some brakes around that. Like something has happened and before everything melts down, we want to get involved in it. Now, Obviously, in the case of Terra and stablecoins, that didn't happen. And now we're trying to clean up the mess after it's already kind of been spilled on the floor. But I'd like to see them get just slightly more proactive. Help me understand where your heads are. Is there an eventual clash between embedded finance, embedded providers of products, you know, big brands driving financial services and leveraging distribution and brand? Um, is there an eventual um, clash between that and what we're seeing now, what we would typically call a challenger, sort of a <clears throat> an on its own, I'm going to acquire customers myself with my own brand. Um, I'm going out there on it myself. I don't, I don't need to be embedded in somebody else's brand. Do you see those two business models um, bumping into each other more and more as time goes on? Well, I certainly do. I mean, I think that the question that's at the heart of that is, just how big embedded finance can really become, right? And I, I've done some consumer research on this in the past. And one of the things I've found that's interesting is consumers are not necessarily as jazzed about embedded finance as I think like VCs in the fintech space would expect them to be. Um, and I think part of the reason for that is that there are certain products that are really good fit for embedded finance. And then there are other ones that are just not and probably never really will be, right? And so as an example, um, lending tends to perform very well when you ask about it in an embedded finance context, right? Because the purpose of getting a loan has nothing to do with the loan itself or the provider you get it from. It's really just 
I want a good price and I want to get this conveniently because my goal is to buy a car or a house or a television. Right. And so it's like, it's the reason buy now, pay later is so effective at engaging customers is that the financing is presented when you need it. And then you never have to think about it ever again. Right. And so I think that lending tends to perform very well. And we've known this for 20 years, right? I mean, indirect auto lending dominates direct auto lending in the United States, something like 70 to 30% because I'm buying a car. I want to go to the dealership. I want to drive the car. I want to get financing when I'm there. I don't want to go to a bank and get a check and then go back to the dealership. So I think convenience tends to win in lending. But you know, when I was doing consumer research on this, I would ask about other use cases like checking accounts, savings accounts, um, some things that are certainly have a transactional component to them, but also have a relationship component to them, right? Like when it comes to a checking account, that's where I keep my money. And even though I'm a huge fan of like Call of Duty and PlayStation, I don't want a PlayStation Call of Duty checking account that has my direct deposit going into it, right? Like that doesn't make sense to me. It would seem weird to me as a consumer. And even though there would be convenient benefits perhaps of it going in there, if I spend a lot of time playing video games, it's still strange enough to me as a consumer because I want someone who focuses on money and financial services to own that product and that relationship. And so I think that embedded finance is going to end up being somewhat fractured across use cases and across customer segments where it'll really get deep in certain areas. But in other areas, I think we'll see brands bang their head against the wall trying to make something work that's just not a good fit. I, I hope banks, and Jason, I, I'm going to spin this to you in a second. I I hope this is where um, the future of banking might lie. And I think to some extent, we're rolling back, um, you know, maybe 15 years. Um, Nikki's older than me, so you probably Easy. remember that. Um, Nikki was one of the very first uh, employees at, at one of these large banks that, that do sponsorship. So, um, but Nikki, you might remember back in the early 2000s. No, you probably don't remember the early 2000s. Um, but I think we are finding ourselves back in the idea of stored value. And I, I hope banks understand that perhaps the, the most important part is where the consumer wants to store their money now or their value, right? We, we should start using value again, in my opinion. Now, what the key is going to be, I might want to connect it to Call of Duty and I might want to connect it to my refrigerator and I might want to connect it to my mobile um, phone company. I expect that. But in the end, I, I feel better about sort of walling off my value over here at my financial institution. I'm not sure I want that many products from you, but boy, just guard my money and make sure I can connect it to all the cool things that I want to do. And I don't know, Jason, I, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I think the the thing people in financial services, including myself, are often guilty of are thinking about these things in terms of, of products, right? And, and a phrase I hear Alex use, which I need to steal, is that it's like the jobs to be done. Like the consumer doesn't care about checking or savings or credit or buy now, pay later or, you know, auto loan. Like they're trying to do something. So, you know, why do they disproportionately finance the dealer? Because they're at the dealer and they want to buy a car. The loan is generally sort of incidental to what it is that they're trying to accomplish. I mean, I think your point um, about, you know, stored value, the way I think about that is, you know, is there enough utility 
some combination of utility, convenience, incentive, and frequency, right? I think we're all probably pretty familiar with the Starbucks example, so I won't like fully go into it, but like that's something that is frequent, convenient, and you're providing an incentive for, for somebody to, to use that as a payment mechanism. Um, on the flip side, you know, Uber, not for consumers, not for riders, but for drivers. If I'm driving Uber every day, you know, would I want sort of an embedded uh, wallet where I can get my payouts immediately, use that to buy gas and continue driving? Yeah, there you have a frequency, a utility and a convenience aspect. And, and I guess an incentive because you can keep, you know, working and earn more. So I think apart from that, if you're talking about a merchant that I go to, you know, a handful of times a year, or even frankly, a handful of times a month, does it make sense for me to have some sort of separate embedded, you know, stored value payment mechanism? Probably not, you know, again, unless there's like a very strong incentive for a consumer to adopt it, I just don't see that making sense. The financing side, BNPL, you know, at checkout, okay. But, you know, some of these other use cases for the consumer side, I do struggle a little bit to see how applicable they are. Awesome. Hey, I, uh, I, I agree with you, Trent. You, you guys, what? I know it doesn't happen very often, just to be clear. Um, but th there are so many angles we could take here with, you know, bank regulation and crypto and cannabis and everything in between. But in spirit of time, um, I would like to ask one departing question, and that is, what is next in your mind for fintech? Not necessarily the the innovation, but what's the right next thing that we all need to be watching? Um, yeah, I mean, the thing I have harped on with fintech for a while, and I feel like we're now getting there from a scale and a maturity standpoint, is um, customer service. And that's a boring answer, but I think the the thing that I'm learning and that DeFi and crypto is sort of accelerating my learning on is that, um, you know, customer service is one of those timeless core competencies when you're dealing with people's money that I think that fintech companies uh, and certainly crypto and DeFi companies have really under-resourced uh, to their detriment, right? And I, I won't tell the multitude of stories that I have in my back pocket of interacting with different crypto and fintech apps and running into problems and then maybe somewhat annoyingly testing out their customer service functionality because I'm also kind of curious about it, but like horror stories that I won't tell. And it's because they have a very lean operating model. They want to drive everything to self-service. They want to have to Jason's earlier point, like FAQs where, you know, you can get all your questions answered, but you can never talk to someone or even like chat with someone and I think that especially what's happened with Terra and with Anchor have really driven home the point that when you digitize financial services, problems can happen fast. They can happen instantly. They can happen 24-7. They can happen at 2 o'clock in the morning when you're asleep. And you need the ability to get responsive customer service even more than we did in sort of the old nine to five banking world, right? And so I think if anything, fintech companies should be uh, outspending banks when it comes to customer service, uh, let alone just spending the same amount or resourcing that the same amount. And so I think that's a huge shift that we're in the very early innings of, but that we'll see more and more over the next you know two to five years. I mean, I think Alex is completely right in the point he's making. And if you want to illustrate it, you know, try calling a neobank customer service line. You probably can't even find the phone number, 
try calling you know, Goldman Sachs uh, or Amex, and you're probably going to be able to get a real person within you know, a minute or two. Uh, and that is, that is a, a, a you know, competitive advantage. Um, I mean, as far as offering like a slightly different topic, I'm uh, excited slash paying increasing attention to what's happening with open banking. Now, I think that the rulemaking process under 1033, which is like very sort of like nerdy and political and regulatory, ha has not really received as much attention as I, I thought it would or should in the sense that sort of how this gets codified, right? And we're about 12 years behind the requirement at Dodd-Frank to, to actually build this regulation, will sort of dictate what products and services are possible, right? So, I mean, the, the rulemaking is going on now. It's going to sort of define, you know, what data fields are available, what's considered proprietary, how is it shared, what can you do with that data when it's shared, who has responsibility for it, um, which I think is really important, right? I mean, we talked about uh, sort of sponsor banks and uh, regulation compliance and sort of liability tied to that. The same thing is gonna sort of play out in the open banking space. Who's the traffic cop that says, you know, who's allowed to access my open banking data? Right now, it's essentially by default, Plaid and MX and Finicity, as far as doing due diligence and deciding who they're gonna onboard onto their platform. Is that the, is that the right place to couch that responsibility, both as far as ensuring that you know, the entities who have access to that data are reputable and using it appropriately. Uh, but also you could imagine sort of um, you know, competitive scenarios where you know, much like Operation Choke Point under the Obama DOJ, legal businesses, and by the way, we always use the three Ps, uh, pills, payday loans, and pornography for the disfavored businesses. So you guys taught me a new one today. But it's like legal, but maybe disfavored businesses not having access to services that, that you know, there's no legal justification for. And who should be making those decisions? Is it you know, some sort of regulatory body? Is it private for-profit you know, companies? And, and these are questions that, that remain unanswered, but are gonna have a very important um, impact on sort of the shape of innovation and the shape of products and services that can use this, you know, use this underlying uh, open banking data and open banking services. So that's something I'm paying a lot of attention to these days. Yeah, I like that. That's, that's really, really good. You guys both um, have, have brought up such good things that blow my mind and I'm reluctant to do this, but um, Trent, go ahead and put your ego aside for a second, but I do think I get of a window, you I as, get a chance. You do. I think of you as a thought leader too. And so what? I, a little bit. Um, so how about you? We I'm should curious. put that. I think of you as a thought leader in like a, in the front of every single show, like it'd be our lead in. Maybe we tweak our lead in and, and only, we go with that. Only as long as Ish <clears throat> follows it. But you do have some interesting thoughts around this too. I think, look, at the risk of sounding like a Debbie Downer here, um, what I'm watching is the first, um, I don't want to say failure. I'm, I'm waiting to watch the first implosion. And when I say implosion, I don't, I don't want to make it sound more dramatic than it is, but it is going to be harder for fintechs to raise capital. There is no debate on that. Um, and if they can't raise capital and they're running out of cash and Jason touched on this in his article last week around, um, um around Varo and, you know, sooner or later they're going to raise cash. I, I'm probably a little less concerned about the Varos than I am probably the companies that are four or five years behind Varo or three or four years behind Varo. They are going to find themselves out of cash and they're going to find themselves with 300,000 customers 
um, and unable to service those customers. And then it's going to roll back onto the bank as a service provider, and it's going to roll back onto the sponsor bank. And and we're going to find some situations where deals, things are going to have to get unwound. And it's going to be a very good test for this system because we haven't faced that in the last five to 10 years. There just hasn't been an implosion um, because in the end, if I'm out of money, I'll just raise more. Um, money's falling from the sky. And so I'll just keep spending. And, you know, it, it I, I hate to call it capital because I don't think it is capital. It's cash. Um, capital is there to absorb bumps in the road. This is here to fuel a business. And if it runs out, you know, the business isn't going to be, is there's nothing to fuel the business anymore. And it's going to leave consumers in a tough spot. And I think to go back to what Alex said earlier, you know, when we have an, the eventual implosion, and I do think it's going to happen in the next 12 months, um, then you're inviting regulators in to say, look, we let you guys run on this one for a while. Look what happened. Um, now we're coming in and we're going to, we're going to come in and save the day. And so I, I know that that's no way to, to end a podcast, but mm -hmm. I do believe it is something to watch for in the next 12 months when, when the equity markets start to line up with the regulations, start to line up with the general economy, and then consumers are left feeling um, a bit high and dry by what they thought was a really cool product three years ago. All good, good, good stuff, guys. And I thank you so much for taking a ton of time sharing your wisdom. And I mean, you write about it, you talk about it and, and appreciate you sharing just a little bit with us today. There you have it. We hope you enjoyed this episode of FinTech Brews and News. Keep up with all the content and cool stuff happening at Falls FinTech and Central Payments by checking out our website, our YouTube channel, LinkedIn and Twitter. Subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss out on our next episode. I'm Nikki Rohde. And I'm Trent Sorby. See you next time. Cheers. Cheers.